You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, a couple of weeks ago, the last time that we were in Paul's letter to the Romans, we began Romans chapter 9. And I commented then that for many Christians, Romans 9 is either, on the one hand, a boogeyman. We don't know what to do with it. It says things that are hard and easy to misunderstand. And On the other hand, for some believers, Romans 9 is a bat. It's, a bludge, it's a, an instrument to bludgeon people with. We just kind of pepper spray everything with the sovereignty of God as though that ends every conversation and answers every question. And of course, it's neither. Romans 9 is not a boogeyman, nor is it a weapon to be wielded in our hands. Romans 9 fits beautifully and logically with what Paul has written in the letter. The way that Paul introduces the doctrine of election is very important. He introduces this material with his grief over his kinsmen, his acknowledgement that many Israelites have not believed, and it pains him, and he acknowledges that he is just like them. He introduces the material as a defense of the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of God's word, that God's promises are as sure as his word because God is always faithful. And he introduces the material as a defense of Jesus as the Messiah. Today, in Romans chapter 9, we're going to encounter God's purpose of election. Pretty significant. It's no small thing. Now, rhetorically, it's debatable that what I'm about to do is a good idea, but I don't really care. I want you to know where we're going. There will be no bait and switch with this message, and I'm not going to magically just pull a rabbit out of a hat 40 minutes in. God's purpose of election is to save his people, and God's purpose of election is to show that he is a redeemer, that he is the Savior to show that salvation is all of his grace and all of his mercy. To show that he alone is the ground of all of his goodness and mercy and grace toward mankind because there could be no other ground for his goodness and his mercy and his grace towards sinful people. Those things are his purpose of election. May our souls be encouraged and strengthened today as we consider the love of God for even wretched, miserable offenders like us. If you have your Bibles with you, open them to Romans chapter 9. As you're turning to Romans 9, though we're going to be considering verses 6 to 13 today, I want to give us a little bit of context in terms of what Paul had communicated in the first five verses of the chapter. 
So Paul begins Romans 9 by using strong language to express his grief and his sadness, his pain over the unbelief of his fellow Jews. A significant piece of his grief, as we considered a couple of weeks ago, is related to the fact that he could easily still be where they are in their unbelief. At one time, he was a self-conscious enemy of Christ and his church and was proud to be. Regarding Paul's kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites. They are the most honored people on earth. They bear the name that God gave to Jacob that faithful night when God the Son wrestled with Jacob all night and willingly lost and blessed him and changed his name. These Israelites had many blessings and many advantages. Most pointedly, the fact that the Christ came through them and from them. But the reality is that many Israelites did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. They did not believe his word. They didn't trust him. So it seems that one of two things is true. You've got to feel this tension if you're going to rightly understand this portion of Paul's letter. It seems that Israel's unbelief means that one of two things is true. One, maybe God doesn't keep his promises. Or two, maybe Jesus is not, in fact, the Lord's anointed. In the first case, if God doesn't keep his promises, how can anyone know that God will do what he has said he will do for them? And in the second case, Jesus is a fraud and a liar. So are the apostles. And the gospel is a sham. It's a crock. Serious question. If to the Israelites belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, if to the Israelites belong the patriarchs and the Christ came from them, and yet many of them don't believe and will therefore face wrath, how can we, how can you, how can I know that we will be saved? Paul's answer in Romans 9, 6 and following is that God has always saved his people and his word has not failed. That's how you can know. Another serious question. If the doctrine of salvation through faith in Christ is in fact the doctrine of the Old Testament, the doctrine of the law and the prophets, then why is it that the Jews, by and large, reject it? Paul's answer in Romans 9, 6 and following is that the Lord had said this would be the case. We shouldn't be surprised. Through the rest of Romans 9 and on into the 11th chapter, Paul explains to us how the rejection of the Messiah by the great majority of the Jewish nation was not contrary to the promises or the purposes of God. And how that rejection of Jesus in no way means that he is not the Christ. Let's look now to the text. Romans 9, verses 6 to 13. Listen as I read. This is the word of God. 
But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We thank God for his word today and every day. My plan for the rest of our time this morning is to consider this passage in three points and then offer a conclusion. So three points and a conclusion. We're going to be explaining and reflecting and applying largely as we go. So we'll begin with point one. Children of the promise are the children of God pretty basic. Children of the promise are the children of God. We're going to look at verses 6 through 9 for the next little while. Put your eyes on verse 6. The unbelief of many Jews that we have acknowledged at multiple points already this morning did not mean, according to the Apostle Paul, that the word of God had failed. You see that. It is not as though the word of God has failed. And Paul begins in the latter portion of verse 6 by saying, you see, there's a distinction amongst Israelites. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Verse 7, he goes on. Not only this, there is a distinction amongst the descendants of Abraham. Not all of Abraham's posterity are his children. Let's pause for just a moment. It's clear that there is more than one way to be an Israelite. That's plain already. Being an Israelite versus being of true Israel. There are multiple ways to be an Israelite. It is also clear that there is more than one way to be a child of Abraham. You can be his physical descendant or his spiritual child. They're not one and the same. Many Jewish people, many Israelites, thought that they were children of God by virtue of being children of Abraham. And this was an error. A relationship to Abraham did not unite anyone to the promised Redeemer. It united you to Abraham. It made you an Israelite. That's true. But it did not unite you to the Christ. Natural sonship related to Abraham was effectively a type and a shadow of spiritual sonship. The physical descendants of Abraham were a type of all believers that would come from every tribe and tongue and nation. We often in Theology Night, as we've made our our trek through covenant theology material, we often reference John chapter 8 to help us understand this reality, that there are multiple ways to be a child of Abraham. 
Many are familiar with the text. Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience and has just made the statement that if the Son, talking about himself, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And his audience was offended. We're children of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone. Why would you say you'll become free? And Jesus says to them in John 8, 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works that Abraham did. Namely, you would believe me. He's going to later say, you continue to appeal to Abraham. Abraham appealed to me. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So Jesus acknowledges, I know on the one hand that you're children of Abraham, according to the flesh. And then on the other hand, if you were children of Abraham, according to the spirit, you would believe my word. Union with Christ by faith is how anyone is a child of God. And that has always been true. Doesn't matter which Testament we're talking about, old or new. Those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham, Galatians 3, 7. Paul cites in our text, looking back to Romans 9, in verse 7, the latter portion of it. Paul cites Genesis 21, 12. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, this does not mean that all the physical descendants of Isaac were to be the spiritual children of Abraham. That would be a misunderstanding. The point is this, just as all of Abraham's posterity were not to be the nation that God would uniquely adopt, but only those who descended from Isaac would be that nation, so also not all the Jews, not all the Israelites are true spiritual sons of God, but only those who, like Isaac, are children of promise. So regarding the promise, this promise we're talking about. The promise is to those who belong to Abraham's promised seed, singular. In the aftermath of the happenings of Mount Moriah, you remember that account where Isaac is taken up the mountain by his father Abraham because God has told Abraham to sacrifice his son. In the aftermath of that whole entire account where God at just the right time provides a substitute, the angel of the Lord spoke to Abraham. And he concluded his words by saying to Abraham, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, Paul picks up on this in his letter to the Galatians and says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. In other words, beloved, the takeaway is this. The children of promise are united to Christ. Those united to Christ are children of promise. And in this sense, Isaac is a foreshadowing of all believers. He's a type of all believers, which is why Paul writes, verse 8, put your eyes there. This means, this is what we should conclude. 
This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. Now, you know, and I know that the birth of Isaac was by promise. Look at verse 9. We're told there of the words of Genesis 18, when the Lord said to Abraham, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. The birth of Isaac was by that promise, and here's the, the thing. It would not have happened. The birth of Isaac would not have happened without a miracle of God. So in one sense, that tells us almost everything that we need to know about what it means to be a child of promise. That is, children of promise are born through a work, a miracle of God. Let the hearer understand. We're talking about regeneration. We're talking about the new birth, being born from above, not according to flesh, not according to the will of any man, but born of God. That's what it is to be a child of promise. It's always been the case, whether we're talking about Isaac or whether we're talking about any one of the believers sitting here this morning. The children of promise are those who, according to the free and sovereign grace of God, were to come into a spiritual relation to Jesus, who is himself the promised offspring in the line of Isaac. The spiritual promises made to Abraham were for the children of promise. The temporal blessings of the national covenant God made with Abraham were for the whole entire nation. There is a distinction between those two subsets of people. This distinction is critical for our understanding. This is how Paul can say that the word of God has not failed. This is how Paul can say that God has kept every one of his promises. It's important for us to wrap our minds around this. That's why we're taking some time to explain. I reference theology night again. If you've been coming on Wednesday nights and learning the doctrine of covenant theology and the various ways that the Lord has dealt with his people through history, you will have heard this before. We understand from the scriptures that there are two really important things going on with Abraham. The first is the covenant that God made with Abraham and his physical children, his physical offspring. That covenant was regarding land and a people and kings, and all of this the Lord did. This covenant found its fulfillment in Israel under the old covenant. If you look to the words of Joshua 21 or Nehemiah 9 or 1 Kings 4, we read language like everything that the Lord promised he would do for Abraham, he has done it. That's the one thing going on with Abraham. The covenant made with him and for his physical descendants and the Lord kept every one of those promises. But secondly, there are the eternal promises made to Abraham and his spiritual children. These find their fulfillment in Christ in the new covenant. This is how we understand that the word of God has not failed. He's done everything that he said he would do for Abraham and his physical descendants, and he has done everything that he said he would do for Abraham and his spiritual children. Namely, he has saved us all. So that's point one. That was some tough sledding. I acknowledge it unapologetically. And we're now moving to point two. This is good for our understanding. Point two, the children of promise are saved purely by God's grace, 
mercy, and goodness. I'll repeat that. Point two, the children of promise are saved purely by God's grace, mercy, and goodness. We're going to look at verses 10 to 12. Verse 10, according to God's election, according to God's choice, Isaac was the son of promise, not Ishmael. But now, Paul goes on to point to an even more striking and remarkable instance. That is, of Isaac's two sons. Remember, Isaac and Ishmael had different mothers. It's possible, therefore, that someone might conclude, well, Ishmael was born of Hagar, the slave woman, and Isaac was born of Sarah. And that's the difference between them, and that explains the difference in God's purposes for them. But here, Paul blows that up, explodes it. Jacob and Esau had, of course, the same father, the one man, Isaac, but they also had the same mother, Rebekah. What's more, they were in the womb at the same time. So the distinction between these two brothers could only be traced to God's sovereign will and his purposes of grace in and through Jacob. So Paul continues to go in. He's just keeping up the purposes of God's grace and mercy. There will be no misunderstanding on this point. Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit, won't allow it. Consider, Jacob and Esau had the same parents. They were in the womb at the same time. When they had not yet been born, beginning of verse 11, and when they had not yet done anything, either good or bad, God, in grace, chose Jacob and not Esau. Now, just continuing to reason together as a fellow human being amongst all of you, in spite of everything already stated, it is the way of fallen humanity to twist things so that in some way we can bring ourselves back into this somehow. Our merit, our worthiness, our works, something. There's got to be an explanation. We can't get ourselves away from this kind of thinking. Our works and our character, they must be a piece of this whole thing. It's what we think, what we feel. So here is where we often go. Well, it must be that God, being omniscient and outside of time, foresaw that Jacob would somehow be better than Esau and therefore would be more worthy than Esau. And that's why he chose Jacob and not his brother. Now, as a brief aside, I mean, looking at the biblical witness of Jacob's life, that's debatable at best. But that's it's not the point. I mean, bro was a trickster and a manipulator and kind of selfish and whiny. All of that's true, but that's not even the point. The point is that God's choice of Jacob had nothing to do with Jacob's parents. It had nothing to do with his birth. It had nothing to do with anything he had done. It had nothing to do with anything foreseen in him. And it had nothing to do with any foreseen work that he might do. Nothing to do with any of that. This is a fundamental 
Christian doctrine. God can see nothing and he can foresee nothing in the corrupt human nature that would cause him to give any of us his favor. Jacob and Esau had this corrupt nature like we do as children of Adam. So when Paul says that neither of them had done anything good or evil, what he took for granted must be stated, that they were both children of Adam and therefore sinful by nature, and therefore endued with not even a single particle of righteousness. We read the words. Let's look at verse 11 just pointedly. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. Since the fall of Adam, God himself is the ground of all of his goodness and mercy and grace toward mankind. I said it once in the introduction. I'm going to say it again now. Since the fall of Adam, God himself is the ground, the reason, the fountainhead, the source of all of his goodness and mercy and grace toward mankind. There is no other ground. There is no other reason. There is no other explanation. Not because of works, but because of him who called. This is God's purpose of election to show that he is the Savior that he is a redeemer, that he is the gracious one, that he is the merciful one, that he is the God of steadfast love. John Calvin writes about verse 11. Now by adding, not through works, but through him who calls, Paul means not on account of works, but of the calling only, for he wishes to exclude works altogether. That's all fine and good, but then he writes this. We have then the whole stability of our election enclosed in the purpose of God alone. Here, merits avail nothing as they issue in nothing but death. No worthiness is regarded for there is none. But the goodness of God reigns alone. Praise be to his name. So let's continue to reflect and apply this. That God himself is the ground all of his goodness and mercy and grace toward mankind, that there is no other ground, there's no other reason, there's no other explanation. A good question for us, what then is our response as his people? What is our response? How do we react? Our reaction in even our somewhat reasonable moments when we see this from the scripture is, my goodness, what grace, what mercy, what an inexplicable love and kindness that I, that we would be rescued by this God. What love and kindness that we have been united to Christ. What love, what kindness, what grace, what mercy that we have been given faith and that we've been adopted as God's sons and daughters. In other words, beloved, we stand in awe. We stand in wonder at the mercy and grace of God. And we worship. 
When you see these things in the Scripture, when these things come home and they land and they hit in your heart and your mind, what are you going to do? You're not going to do anything that's going to move the needle with God toward you. You're not, you're not going to change the way that he feels about you. He's already told you this. He's already said that he loves you and that he's chosen you. And Jesus says to you, I came to seek and to save you in your mind. So what are we going to do? Thank you. Praise be to your name and I will serve you forever. That's what we say. So when we come even to gatherings like this, this is the most significant thing that we do as believers in our lives every week. When we come to worship like this, let this truth of how God operates and of his grace and of his mercy, let this resonate. That when we show up here, it is not fundamentally to do something for him. It's not that we come to offer him something that he needs. It's not that we come to give him something on the basis of which he would show us his favor. No, worship is a dialogue between God and us. We simply respond to what God has said, and we respond to what God has done. We come in need to receive from him, to cast ourselves upon him, to cast ourselves upon his mercy to us in Christ. And then ask the question, is he glorified in that? You better believe he is. Thinking after our text today, read verse 11. What else could we do but respond to him and receive from him and praise him and thank him and agree with him? There is nothing else to do. And here's the sweet thing. When we come and we do all of that, he feeds us. He sustains us. He nourishes us. He strengthens us. Thinking about how God saved us in the first place and about how he works in our lives and hearts helps us to better understand why we worship him and helps us to better understand what we're doing when we come and worship him. This, as I've already said, what we're doing right now is the most significant thing we do, and it's also the most appropriate thing that we ever do because God is worthy of all praise and thanks. Point three. I've entitled this the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room, point three. We're going to look at verse 13. So Paul, you can put your eyes on it. Paul cites the prophet Malachi to further demonstrate the point that he's making. As it is written, and whenever, by the way, whenever the apostles write that formula, as it is written, they are citing Scripture as authoritative, objective truth. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. These are from the opening verses of the prophet Malachi. In Malachi chapter 1, the Lord is rebuking the people of Israel for their ingratitude and for their questioning of whether or not he actually loves them. So he says to them there, I loved your father, Jacob, and you have benefited from that. I did not love Jacob's brother Esau. In fact, I hated him. I was wrathful toward him, and Edom has suffered because of that. 
Though the prophet writes of Jacob and Esau as heads of nations and of their respective posterities, what is ultimately in view in Malachi 1 are spiritual and eternal realities for Jacob and Esau personally. That becomes quite clear as we read Paul's understanding as an apostle of the Old Testament. This is how Paul clearly understands the prophet Malachi. He cites him to prove that God's purpose of election stands not by works, but because of his own grace and mercy. And he clearly quotes Malachi in reference to Jacob and Esau personally. That's especially true given of how he has written of the two brothers personally in verses 10 to 12. So for Paul, Jacob and Esau are emblematic of how some among the descendants of Abraham were children of God in spirit and others were not. That's how Paul cites the prophet. As emblematic, Jacob and Esau are emblematic of how some among the descendants of Abraham were children of God in spirit and others were not. Now, having said all that, let's talk about God hating Esau. We would do ourselves no service to not stare these things in the face and wrestle with God's word. God hated Esau before he was born, before he was capable of committing evil, before he could sin personally. So what do we make of that? Well, if I say this humbly, I trust you feel this as well. If we submit ourselves to the word of God, it actually is not a complicated answer. I didn't say it wasn't deep, but it isn't complicated. Esau sinned in Adam. And so he was therefore a proper object of God's wrath, just like fallen Adam was. There is no other way to account for this, for the language here and the treatment of Esau. God would not be wrathful or Hateful, have hatred toward someone who did not deserve it. Right? By nature, Esau was a corrupt creature. Conceived in iniquity, he had innate depravity. His faculties were innately bent toward evil, not good. And here's the thing. This is where it gets difficult for us. And God, unlike in the case of Jacob, God did not counteract these things by his grace. Jacob was just as wicked, just as corrupt, and like Esau, by nature a children of wrath, and also a proper object of hatred. Now you realize, I trust as you think this through, you realize it is not God's wrath toward any wicked creature that's astonishing. How else would a good God who hates evil, what else would we have him do? That's not what's astonishing that he would love any of us is what's astonishing. It's not his wrath towards sin. It's his love of sinners that is shocking. So on all of this, it's very normal for us to sympathize with Esau. It is natural that we would take up his cause, even against Jacob, that we would read Genesis and would interpret Esau's words and deeds charitably and then interpret Jacob's with more scrutiny. And as I alluded to earlier, it isn't hard to do. The interesting thing is that when we argue this way, it only serves to confirm the truth that Paul is writing of in Romans 9. 
when we build the case that Esau was better than Jacob and we're sympathetic toward him and not toward Jacob, we're agreeing with the apostle. It is true that Jacob had faith in the fear of God, which Esau did not have. And it is therefore the case that he was born of God while Esau remained a child of nature. That said, there is more than enough palpable and obvious corruption and wickedness in Jacob to prove that God didn't choose him for his foreseen goodness or his foreseen good works. And that's what Paul is arguing for. In maintaining, it's important that we reason well about these things. In maintaining the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation, beloved, it is in no way necessary to validate Jacob's sinful conduct at any turn. Both Jacob and his mother, Rebecca, were manipulative and very wrong in the way that God obtained, or excuse me, the way that Jacob obtained Isaac's blessing instead of Esau. They were wrong. They were sinister in their motivations. God's purposes of grace in no way affirm the sinful behavior of his people. Sin is evil, and it is bitter. Jacob experienced that in his life. His manipulative and sinful conduct in tricking Isaac and swindling Esau, you know this, it led him into a labyrinth of difficulty that he really never escaped from for the entirety of his life on earth. It is true that Jacob was a man of God and Esau a man of the world. And it is obvious that Jacob's blessings were given to him by sheer grace, not on account of anything in him or done by him. I want to conclude our time by reflecting on our salvation. These are the things that, as one of the pastors of this church, I want us to leave here with these things in our minds and hearts today. So let me start by asking this question. Why does Jacob get mercy? Why does Jacob get mercy? You realize that every human being gets one of two things from God. We either receive justice, what we deserve, or we get mercy, which is not getting what you deserve. But why does Jacob get mercy? Is it because he was more pious in utero than Esau? Well, of course, that's silly. Is it because God looked through the portals of time and saw that Jacob was going to be a stand-up guy? Also, no, we've already dismissed that. Jacob received mercy because he received mercy. He got mercy because of grace. He got mercy on account of Christ. He got mercy through faith in Christ that God gave him and wrought in him. And that's your testimony too. It's my testimony. I've cited this hymn at multiple points in Romans already. I did it two weeks ago. I'll cite it again. Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Why? To which we answer, I don't know. But he did that for me. He did that for you. He's done it for all the saints. And he'll do it for many more should Christ tarry. The Lord is a redeemer and we will praise him forever for it. Jacob and Esau are one of countless illustrations of how God's saving work is not based on who's better or worse, 
on who's more sinful or less sinful. They are an illustration of how God's saving work is all according to grace and mercy. Over and over again in his word, God blows up all of our notions of how salvation works. Think about this. We always tend to ask the question, do we not? I'm talking about myself as well. We always ask the question, why didn't God show Esau mercy? We ask that question a lot. Why didn't God show Esau mercy? And to myself and to all of us, I would say, beloved, that's the wrong question. We should ask, why would God ever show mercy to Jacob? Why would God ever show mercy to me or to you? There are things in terms of God's plans and purposes that are beyond us and above us. But these are the questions that we ask. We always want God to pull back the curtain, to pop the hood, and to show us how things work and why they work. But then when he does, sometimes we struggle and we don't like what he says. And then on top of that, we tend to get hung up on all the wrong stuff. The message, beloved, of the law and the gospel revealed in the scripture is the most incredible message in the world. God made us. He's way, way bigger and more immense than we can conceive. He is self-generating, self-determining, self-sustaining. He needs nothing. He needs no one. He created out of the fountainhead of his goodness. His justice and his righteousness is unlike anything that we've ever seen. And his holiness is off the charts. This God, in a word, is awesome, full of awe. He is worthy of all of our worship, of all of the glory and all of the praise and all of the love that we could ever give him. He's worthy. And not one of us have ever given it to him. We should obey every law, every command that he's given us. And not one of us has ever obeyed even one of them. Really, at a spiritual level. He tells us that the payment for such rebellion is our lives forever. And he's the one who gave us our lives in the first place. And here's the kicker. This same God took on flesh to fulfill all righteousness. Not because he needed it, because you did, and I did. This same God took on flesh to die for sin, not his own. He didn't have any to die for yours and mine. This same God took on flesh because the children partake in flesh and blood. He partook of the same things in order that through death, he might conquer the one who has the power of death, namely the devil, so that he might set free all of us who have been enslaved to the fear of death. He took on flesh to conquer the evil one and to kick death in the teeth. And he did that for you and for me. This same God bids us to come to him 
to find forgiveness of real sin, to find absolution of real guilt, to find mercy, to find grace, and to receive his very own righteousness. This same God invites us. He says, come to me and I'll never cast you out. Come, drink of the water of life without money and without payment. Come, believe in my son. Cast yourself upon him. He has lived and suffered and bled and died so that all would be well for anyone who trusts him. If you're going to get hung up on anything, beloved, get hung up on that, on grace and mercy and forgiveness. Get hung up on Christ for sinners. When it comes to our salvation, on our part, there's no merit. There's no worthiness. There's no works. There's no righteousness. What is there? When it comes to our salvation, there's God's goodness. There's God's mercy. There's God's grace. And above all, there is Christ. His death, his righteousness, his resurrection, that we come with an open hand and we receive by faith. It is in Christ that we trust. It's in him that we hope. It's in him that we rest. Today and every day. And it is for him that we thank God. So let's do that now.